0: Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are so glad that you're here with us today. I want to especially welcome our visitors and remind you we will have a meal after worship. Encourage everyone to stick around for that. Always a wonderful time and we always have plenty of food. Uh, one announcement that we did not make this morning is remember uh, Maggie Cartwright. We prayed for her a couple times already, but she's a... Uh, pregnant, and um, she had to be taken to the hospital, and she's 33 weeks along, and so uh, please keep her in your prayers. We're continuing our study of grace, and I want to do something maybe you think it's a little unusual this morning. I want to talk about grace and the Old Testament. You know, when we think about grace, we typically think about the New Testament. We think about how many times Paul uses the word grace in his letters or we think about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. The idea that the New Testament is a testament of grace is a biblical one. You know, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, we find this very statement. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so grace is abundant in the New Testament. But This should not cause us to think that grace is absent in the Old Testament. The idea that the Old Testament is lacking in grace has been around for a long, long time. There was a man named Marcion who lived in the 2nd century, and he was one of the first heretics in the Christian church. Um, He claimed that the God of the Old Testament was a vengeful God. He believed that the, the New Testament and the Old Testament were just incompatible. And so um, he believed that the, the, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, they were different gods. Okay? Now most people don't go as far as Marcion did, but this same belief is still alive today. It's espoused by the new atheists. And so, for instance, Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, states. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. And this belief is not just found among atheists and heretics. Some Christians even believe there's a stark difference between the Old and New Testaments. And so I want us to to consider this morning is this true? Is there really a big difference between the Old and New Testaments? Is one full of grace and the other not? Well, I want to suggest to you that it is not. That grace is not a new thing that suddenly appears the first time that Jesus arrives on the scene. Grace is who God is. And grace has been present from the creation onward. Well, why then do so many people hold to this belief? Well, I believe it's because we have not read our Bibles carefully enough. Sometimes we think we know Scripture, and therefore we do not read it as often as we should or as well as we should. We assume that we know all these stories in the Old Testament and so we don't look at them as closely as we ought to. And so I want us to re-examine some of these stories today and we're going to look at several of them and we're going to do so fairly quickly. But I hope that this will whet your appetite to return to Scripture and read these passages again and again. So where does one begin? Well, I believe we should begin in the beginning. Uh, The first appearance of grace in the Bible goes unnoticed by many. And one of the reasons for this is that we are unfamiliar with other creation accounts. And so there are other ancient texts that describe the origins of this earth. However, when you compare all those texts with Scripture, the Bible stands out. Because these other texts are violent. They're filled with conflict. Human beings are an afterthought. They're they're not an important part of the story. And then you look at Scripture, and Scripture presents something very different creation is a gift. God creates, and His creation is good. It's not the result of violence or conflict. God creates human beings in his own image. They're not an afterthought. God blesses human beings and he blesses his creations. And then he appoints us as stewards of all these wonderful works. And so creation is here for us to enjoy and to delight in. And so the creation story is a story of grace. God begins with grace at the very beginning of our Bible. The, the lack of grace that many of us are accustomed to is not present in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. It doesn't show up until Genesis 3 when sin is first introduced into the world. And then from, from Genesis 4 onward, we read about a world that is lacking in grace. It's a world where brothers murder one another. It's a world that is filled with violence. And hatred. But just because the world is lacking in grace does not mean that God is. Because God continually responds to the sinfulness of human beings with grace. Now, because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek, there are different words that are used for the things of God. And sometimes we see these differences in our English Bibles. And so the the word grace is found all over the place in the New Testament. But what is grace? Well, many of you know the standard definition, unmerited favor. The word grace is found in the Old Testament too, but another word that is often used that conveys the, the very same idea is this word favor favor. And so where do we find this word? We can begin in Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now the Bible could have ended there, but it doesn't. Next comes grace. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The world was wicked and violent. The world deserved to be destroyed, but Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And it was because of grace that God did not end humanity. And that's just the beginning. The rest of the Old Testament is story after story of the grace of God. The book of Genesis could be renamed Grace Stories. Now, maybe that's not the way you think of those stories, but, but they are. They're filled with grace. These are not perfect individuals who earn God's blessing. These are people with messy lives who receive God's favor, God's grace. And so I want you to, co- to consider the story of Jacob. Jacob is not a model follower of God. His name Um, means supplanter, because he tricks his brother twice. Jacob is a deceiver. Uh, He does not earn his inheritance justly. He tricks his brother and his father, and so uh, you'll remember that that Jacob is a twin, and he has this brother named Esau, and Esau was the firstborn, and therefore Esau was entitled to uh, certain rights and privileges. Esau, we learn in the text, is a hard worker. He's a hunter. And this is how he provides for himself. But Jacob, on the other hand, is cunning and even dishonest. The first hint of this comes at the end of Genesis 25, where we read, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. And Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright when Esau was exhausted from working in the field all day long, Jacob sees an opportunity. And he seeks to gain something valuable by paying far less than what it is worth. Now Esau is not innocent in this. Esau should have rejected the deal. He should not have allowed his appetite to guide his decisions However, Jacob should have known better. Jacob is not loving his brother as himself. Jacob is not acting justly here. He's taking advantage of his brother. And this is not the only time that something like this occurs. Next, Jacob, this time with the help of his mother, obtains his father's blessing through deception. This time, Jacob dresses up as Esau, And he pretends to be his older brother. He knows that that Isaac is blind and that he cannot see. And so Jacob brings his father food that that Rebekah has prepared. And he lies to his father. And he receives the blessing instead of Esau. Now when Isaac and, and Esau learn what has happened, they are enraged. The text says, then Isaac trembled. Very violently, and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. And as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. When Esau lost his birthright to his brother, the text says that he despised his birthright. But now when he loses his blessing to Jacob, the text says that Esau despises his brother. And their relationship is summed up in Genesis 27 and verse 41 where it says, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother, Jacob. And because of all this, Jacob has to flee. And he runs away to his uncle, a man who, has, who is as cunning and deceitful as Jacob is. And so when Jacob wants to marry one of his daughters, he makes him work seven years. And then on the night of his wedding, he tricks him and he gives him the other daughter instead. And Jacob has to work seven more years to marry the woman that he loves. And this deceit continues between Jacob and his uncle Laban until Jacob has to just flee again. And now he's been gone for years. He's spent his life traveling from one place to another. He's lost his father, his mother, and his brother because of all this deception. And he's on the road again. And while on the road, he encounters God. And this is not the first time that something like this has happened to Jacob. Earlier, God spoke to Jacob through a dream. And this time, Jacob gets in a wrestling match and God blesses him and gives him a new name. And Jacob is now traveling back to his homeland and he's preparing to meet his brother. And he's preparing for the worst. The last time that he saw his brother, Esau was filled with anger and he vowed to kill him. And so what will he do now? What will he do when he sees Jacob? Well, Jacob gets ready. It says that Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the the country of Edom, instructing them. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau. Thus says your servant Jacob I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. What is Jacob seeking from his brother? He's seeking favor. He's seeking grace. Now, these messengers that Jacob sent, they come back and they tell him that Esau is coming to meet him. But he's not alone. He has 400 men who are coming with him. Now, how would you feel if the person who had vowed to kill you was coming to meet you with an army of men. You can feel the tension. This is not what Jacob wants to hear. He has nowhere to turn. And so what does he do? He does the only thing he can do. He prays. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. This was your plan, God. This is what you told me to do. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Please, please deliver me. After all these years, Jacob has finally learned his lesson. And he turns to God and he confesses, I am not worthy. And what happens next is remarkable. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Jacob receives grace. He receives what he does not deserve. And so the story of Jacob is a story of grace. And notice what Jacob says about his brother's actions. He says, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, Then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Jacob has seen God in a dream. Jacob has wrestled with God, and now Jacob says that he sees God in the face of his brother. What could cause such a response? The answer is grace. You know, when we think about that famous story in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, the prodigal son, we probably think, well, that's a unique story. There's nothing else like that story. The reason we think that is we haven't read our Bibles very closely. How did the father respond to his lost son, the the lost son who demanded his inheritance, who left home, who went and wasted all that money on frivolous living. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Sounds a lot like the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Sounds a lot like grace. Well, the story of Jacob and Esau is one of many. You go to the next story, and it's the same thing. Joseph shows grace to his brothers who hated him and sold him into slavery. You go to the next book, Exodus, and God shows grace to Israel after they had built a golden calf and worshipped it, rather than worshipped the God who had freed them from Egyptian bondage. And it's in this context that God reveals himself to Moses. And you'll remember that Moses goes onto the mountain, and God passes by, and as God passes by Moses, he says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and this description of god is unique it's unique because it's god who's telling us who he is these are the words of god who is god he is merciful he is gracious he is slow to anger he is abounding in steadfast love we serve a god of grace and the authors of scripture they, they know this and they understand this because they keep coming back to this one verse over and over again. It's found throughout all of the Bible. Well, as history continues to unfold, people's lives get messy. They get really messy. And yet, God's grace remains a constant fixture. And sometimes people's lives get so messy that that God's grace just really stands out. You could say it's radical grace. We see this in the book of Jonah. The people of Nineveh, pagans, had done some awful, awful things. They were not deserving of salvation, they needed to be punished. They deserved to accept the full consequences of their sins. And this is why when God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, he refuses to go. Jonah understands who God is. Jonah knows what God will do, and he does not like it. He's upset when God shows grace to the people of Nineveh. We find these words at the end of the book of Jonah. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster." Jonah quotes Exodus 34. He's quite familiar with this passage. He understands the grace of God. The idea that we first encounter the grace of God in the book of Matthew, and it's not found anywhere before, is a false one. Pick up your Bible and read it. You know, I could go on and on, but but we have to stop somewhere. And and one of the places in the Old Testament where we really see the radical uh, grace of God is in the book of Hosea. And this is a book about a a real-life prophet, but it's also a book that, that symbolizes the relationship between God and his people. And in it, God commands Hosea to go and to marry a prostitute. And so Hosea goes and he marries someone who is unfaithful. He marries someone who has a history of unfaithfulness. And they have children together. But eventually his wife returns to her ways and she goes back out into the world and she prostitutes herself again. So what does God do? He comes to Hosea and he says, go find your wife take her back, buy her out of prostitution. And the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethic of barley. Hosea goes and he finds his wife in a house of ill repute and he pays off the man who has enslaved her. At the end of Hosea, God says to Israel, I will heal their disloyalty. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. Now if God can forgive the Hebrew people at Mount Sinai, if God can forgive the pagan people of Nineveh, if God can forgive unfaithful Israel again and again and again, surely he can forgive you and me. God allowed himself to be humiliated on a cross because he loves us that much. But this was not the first time that God was willing to endure humiliation on behalf of his people. We see his willingness to endure humiliation in the book of Hosea. God attaches himself to an unfaithful spouse. God goes to the house of prostitution and he pays the ransom. He loves us even when we cannot love ourselves. And God desires to pull us out of the muck and mire of sin and to set us free. Yes, God's love is evident in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it's also evident in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. God does not change. His love is the same. He is a God of grace at Sinai. He is a God of grace at Nineveh. And he is a God of grace at Calvary. Jonah did get one thing right. He put these words in his heart. The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. May we put these words in our hearts, and may we remember them for the rest of our lives. May we come to know and understand the radical grace of God. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you this morning confessing that we are sinful people in need of your grace and we thank you that you are a merciful and gracious god abounding in steadfast love and we pray that you would forgive us of our shortcomings that you would show us grace and father i pray that that we would come to know more and understand more your love and grace because sometimes it's so radical that We might find it unbelievable that we may not think that, that you could love someone like us, but you do. You show your grace towards us over and over again, and may we never forget it. We're so thankful for Jesus who lived out grace here on this earth, who showed grace to the people around him, and who went to the cross and died for everyone here this morning. May we embrace His love and His grace and continue to show it to everyone that we encounter. We pray this in His name. Amen.